Twitter, the damage that Elon Musk has done, and the journalists who can't quite quit the platform. Fox News settles with Dominion. The proof of the big lie is in the payout. And media outlets driven underground in Nicolas Maduro's Venezuela. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and analyze how news gets reported. When Elon Musk bought Twitter six months ago, the billionaire said he would radically change the platform, turn it into what he called an unbiased digital marketplace of ideas. That change has come, and it's been mostly for the worse. 80% of Twitter's staff has been laid off. Content moderation policies have been scrapped. Thousands of formerly banned accounts have been reinstated. Musk says it's all about freedom of speech, that welcoming back neo-Nazis and conspiracy theorists gives everybody, no matter their politics or their views, a voice. His critics are not buying it, not with hate speech and misinformation on the rise. Other policy changes have led to some news organizations shutting down their Twitter accounts. Journalists, though, individuals, cannot quite bring themselves to do the same for the simple reason that when it comes to news, there is still no platform quite like Twitter, and they have nowhere else to go. To sum up what Twitter has felt like since the acquisition, I would describe it as chaotic. Destructive, it's been chaotic and unpredictable. Those are the three words I think describe Elon Musk's reign the past six months. From day one, you know, he came in um, looking to stir things up, and now about 80% of the company's gone. We're seeing a Twitter that is much more unreliable, much more unpredictable. But as someone who's been covering Elon Musk for a while, to me it's very predictable. One year after making his initial bid for Twitter, six months after taking over, Elon Musk is making the platform his own. Every week, it seems, he announces that he's changing this, tweaking that. There's a larger question, however, about Twitter's viability as a business. Will it survive under Musk's leadership? Long story short, no one really knows, because the takeover has transformed Twitter, turning it into a privately owned company, a one-man show. But what we do know doesn't look good. The analytics of any private company are not public. This has created a very difficult situation because now Elon Musk says, we have more advertisers, we have more users than ever, and there's no way to fact check him. So journalists covering the company are just put between a rock and a hard place because we have him making these statements that sure do sound unsupported, right? Out of Twitter's biggest advertisers before the Musk acquisition, half of them have left and have not come back. And this is a company where something like 90% of their yearly revenue historically came from advertising dollars. So we're talking something like four, $4.5 billion out of just over $5 billion coming from ad revenue for Twitter prior to Musk. We have reason to question every single claim that Musk has made. Are you guys listening? There's outside evidence said that Twitter's web traffic had dropped by 8% uh, last month, year over year. Major advertisers are continuing to leave or remain off of Twitter uh, in the wake of Elon Musk's ownership. Many of them find him too volatile. These numbers just simply don't add up. 
Director. Our entire team got laid off. Yeah, How data engineering. Uh, 30. 30 people in yeah. data engineering. Musk effectively destabilized the platform from day one, laying off thousands of workers, foremost among them content moderators. He has reshaped Twitter into what he calls a non-biased digital town square of ideas, reinstating accounts the site's former board of directors had banned, like Donald Trump's, as well as the kind of neo-Nazis and conspiracy theorists sometimes associated with him. Let me give you an example. Um, Stu Peters is a far-right conspiracy theorist spreading COVID misinformation. And not only has Elon Musk brought Stu Peters back to the platform, but Stu Peters has been getting recommended a lot by Twitter's algorithm. I've seen it myself. I've heard from other users saying, why is this guy always showing up in my feed? I don't follow him. I don't like his tweets. Yet Twitter's algorithm under Elon Musk has decided that we want to promote this individual to our users. If you are Jewish and there are Nazis on Twitter, that's not fun, that's not great. If there are people that are actively posting very racist content, then people on the platform feel unsafe. And when you have people that have a history of targeting marginalized people and trying to make their lives difficult, that's really scary. And Elon Musk has not always given freedom of speech to everyone on the platform. For example, in India, Twitter actually took down a video um, by the BBC that was critical of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. We see other cases like that again, where Elon Musk sort of seems to completely defy his free speech values. Is that a town square that's safe for everyone, or is it a town square where certain voices can drown out others or intimidate others? And are those voices even who they say they are? Because this past week, Twitter's familiar blue check marks were transformed as well. They were verification markers, a signal to users that accounts in the name of public figures, journalists, politicians, and the like were legitimate. Now, a blue check costs users $8 a month, which allows anyone who comes up with the money to appear verified. As for the mainstream side, Elon Musk recently took to labeling certain news organizations as state-affiliated or government-funded, resulting in PBS and NPR in the U.S. abandoning Twitter. Canada's CBC did the same. Those networks left as acts of protest over a designation that put them in the same category as an RT in Russia or a CGTN coming out of China. Bobby Allen covers Silicon Valley, the tech beat for NPR. I emailed Elon and said, hey, why did you do this exactly? And to my surprise, he engaged with me. And he was asking me questions that are easily answerable on Google. He was saying, what's the financial structure of NPR? How much funding does NPR receive from the federal government? By the way, the answer is about 1% of our operating budget comes from competitive federal grants, not very much. And after our exchange, he said, okay, I decided to change the label to state-funded, not state-affiliated, so he softened the language a bit. But after this long exchange, executives at NPR said, this is just not worth it. But it doesn't make sense to me. Like, why aren't we also putting labels on the various for-profit news organizations that don't take government or public funds, but clearly take money from corporations? 
there are a number of news outlets who put out uh, basically uh, news segments about why uh, fossil fuels are just fine. And then you find out that they're funded by ExxonMobil or BP. Um, if we're gonna be completely transparent, we should know where uh, the funding for any of these news organizations really come from. This past Friday, in another apparent policy change, those labels just disappeared. No announcement was made or explanation offered. While he tries to create the impression of openness, Elon Musk's default setting with journalists lies somewhere between contemptuous and childish. Four months ago, he released the Twitter files, selectively chosen tidbits on the platform's previous owners and their supposed liberal leanings. The material revealed the company had colluded with the U.S. security state, but exposed little in the way of ideological bias. Send Twitter's comms team an email, though, asking about that or any matter, and the standard reply now includes a poop emoji, as if there isn't a grown-up left in the building. This past week, Musk, who insists he's a political centrist, temporarily parked his contempt for reporters by sitting down with, of all people, Tucker Carlson, the notorious merchant of misinformation on Fox News. Now, there's, there's obviously a lot of um, organizations that are used to having sort of unfettered influence uh, on Twitter um, that no longer have that. We used and to the New York Times of their, of their badge this morning, and then you called them diarrhea. You called them diarrhea. <laughs> you did, you did. I'm just... That's Elon Musk, a billionaire who trashes real journalists, then shares the screen with a far-right commentator who does the same. Elon Musk has given interviews where he's talked about the importance of the pursuit of truth. Tucker Carlson has been repeatedly proven to tell lies to a massive audience, and that has really significant political ramifications in the U.S. So it feels disingenuous to me that Musk first himself is a centrist and says that his ultimate goal is to pursue the truth and then to do an interview with a very right-wing commentator who has a history of targeting journalists, particularly women journalists, and sowing distrust in actual unbiased reporting. We again have seen this kind of mutual embrace of Elon with uh, you know the right wing in the US and the US right wing to Elon and I think that's what we saw in this Tucker Carlson interview. Elon is very openly critical of legacy media who he thinks have too much influence on Twitter. So we've seen journalists saying that Elon Musk is antagonizing the media, why should we stay on this platform anymore? But there's nowhere else to go that replicates the Twitter experience where you have culture makers, politicians, media all together talking amongst themselves and with the public. And even though this platform is limping along and Elon has made very destructive decisions that have degraded the quality of the site, I can't help it but to log on every single day. I am still a Twitter addict. Every person I cover is, is on there. Venture capitalists are on there. Startup founders are on there, other tech journalists. And because of that, at least for now, Journalists are just stuck on Twitter, and it's going to take I don't know what to get us to all migrate someplace else. But it seems like the, no matter what Elon does, we're going to be on this platform for better or worse.
We now know just how expensive it can be for an American news network to knowingly misinform its viewers, about three-quarters of a billion dollars. With more on the outcome of the lawsuit launched against Fox News, here's Flo Phillips. Richard, this past Tuesday, just as the case was about to begin in Delaware, Fox settled the defamation lawsuit launched by Dominion Voting Systems, agreeing to pay the company $787.5 million. That's roughly half of the $1.6 billion the company was asking for and still amounts to one of the biggest defamation payouts in U.S. history. The truth matters. Lies have consequences. Dominion accused the conservative news network of repeatedly broadcasting lies that its voting machines were rigged during the 2020 election against Donald Trump. Lies the company says, quote, deeply damaged its once thriving business. They rigged the election in front of all of us and nobody did anything about it. Many could see the out-of-court settlement coming. While the company had obtained internal emails and texts showing key figures at Fox clearly knew the stolen election narrative was bogus, Dominion had to prove that the network was motivated by actual malice and get the jury to agree. Many a media analyst was disappointed by the settlement. They wanted to see Rupert Murdoch, Fox executives and on-air talent like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity take the stand in a case that would have tested the First Amendment, which constitutionally protects free speech in the US. Instead, the settlement was accompanied by a watered-down admission by Fox that, quote, certain claims it had made about Dominion were indeed false. One down, one to go. Fox still faces another lawsuit from another company that makes voting machines, Smartmatic. The ask is $2.7 billion, so Rupert Murdoch's lawyers still have some work to do. Thank you, Flo. Turning to Venezuela now and the difficulty that citizens there have making ends meet. The economy went bust more than a decade ago. U.S. sanctions stand in the way of a recovery. Social infrastructure is collapsing. And when journalists bring that up, they have to contend with President Nicolas Maduro's government and its authoritarian tendencies. Venezuela now imprisons more journalists than any Latin American country, and extreme censorship has led to media workers getting charged with defamation, slander, even terrorism. That has led to some quality reporting going underground, from grassroots groups broadcasting news on buses to websites run by exiled journalists documenting corruption and human rights abuses. The Listening Post's Ryan Coles now on how media outlets are finding their way in Maduro's Venezuela. The most powerful thing about our offline format is that it enables us to bring information to where people are. So we don't have to wait for them to turn on the TV or have an internet signal to connect to our website. What we do is see where the people are and take the information to them. El Bus TV truly deserves recognition. Not only do they present the news to people on their routes, they also have close relationships with the people they serve. It is one of the media outlets that has had the greatest impact on communities here. Local journalism really builds communities. It is the kind of journalism that puts you in contact with your neighbor or local counselor. Sí, no. 
We may not have the advantage of the algorithm, but we have the advantage of being able to sit down and listen. We don't do what's called helicopter journalism, where we fly in, look for something, and then leave. Rather, our job is to be present, to stay. In Venezuela's media sphere, where state control is pervasive and journalists are closely monitored, the reporters on El Bus TV have made some conscious decisions. Their focus is local. Their work is analog rather than digital. They present their news in person on public buses. El Bus TV's news bulletins can't be taken off the air because they really never go on air in the first place. And that's useful in a media climate that's become tightly repressive over the past decade, years that have been dominated by the government of President Nicolás Maduro. You could sum up the overall media situation of Venezuela in two words, censorship and self-censorship. Over here, it seems as though we are constantly in a state of emergency because the lack of access to official information is chronic. There are no statistics about public health, no credible figures for employment levels, no data regarding extrajudicial executions by the state. What we've seen in Venezuela is a process of institutional disillusion, leaving us with no independent institutions. Unfortunately, these are ideal conditions for an increasingly limited, neutered media. This actually started during the government of Nicolás Maduro's predecessor, Hugo Chávez. Those years were marked by a stance of confrontation with the media. Eventually, regulations became much stricter and a massive propaganda machine was created using public funds. Then something special happened during Maduro's tenure. It was no longer just about state media pushing out propaganda. There were also large private media groups, such as Diario El Universal and Globovisión, the only 24-hour news channel, that were acquired by businessmen with close ties to the government. Media outlets that haven't been co-opted or bought out have collapsed under financial pressure and state intimidation. In the past decade, more than 60 Venezuelan newspapers have gone out of circulation. Maduro's government, like Hugo Chavez's before, has argued, and not without validity, that the media landscape needed to be reshaped because of the power and influence of right-wing oligarchs who had acquired news organizations. Recent challenges to Maduro's hold on power, including some backed by the U.S. government, have only hardened that position. Opposition leader Juan Guaido calling for the military to oust the sitting president, Nicolas Maduro. And journalists doing critical reporting have found themselves in the state's crosshairs. Roberto Denise is one of them. Five years ago, he and his colleagues at investigative outlet Armando.info fled across the border to Colombia. Reporting they had done on brazen corruption and money laundering in Venezuela's state-run food distribution program, known as CLAPS, is what got them in trouble. When you cover stories of corruption, People can get lost in all the figures and details, but ultimately, they don't have a sense of how this affects them directly. However, our investigations into the state's food distribution network showed that at a time when Venezuela was in real need, hundreds of millions of dollars of public funds were being used to buy essential supplies of very low quality. This eventually ended up in the homes of some of the poorest people in Venezuela. 
It was probably one of Armando.info's most widely read reports ever. Not only have they uncovered important information, they've also identified the key actors in the corruption scheme, which we didn't expect was going to be possible. It has been admirable and remarkable that they still want to pursue these issues, despite the risks that come with the job. These journalists have had to leave the country due to threats and arbitrary legal proceedings. They've carried out their work covering these important topics, despite the limitations of living abroad. Doing the reporting is one thing. Getting it out to Venezuelans is quite another. Nearly half the country's population lives in regions with limited access to information. But even for those who have the means, a TV signal or an online connection, finding that information when it's not approved by the state ranges from the challenging to the impossible. CanTV, the state-run internet service provider, leads the list of operators that most frequently block websites. And on TV, the state network, VTV, dominates, closely followed by Global Vision, which is owned by a businessman allied with the Maduro government. Vladimir Viegas used to host a show on that network. He's well-connected. His brother is a former minister of communications, and Viegas has held many political roles himself. But even he found the editorial pressure at Global Vision too much. I worked at Globovision from 2013 until last year when I left. In May of last year, I had a complaint filed against me for an interview I did. I resigned because I couldn't keep things going there. Today, I still have my program on Union Radio and my own YouTube channel. I have more freedom in terms of what I can and can't talk about, but I have less reach. But at least I can interview politicians I could have never interviewed on TV or on the radio. For instance, whenever there are street protests, anchors on TV are clearly told who they can or cannot bring on the air. On YouTube, I can speak with anyone, or at least I've been able to so far. We sent an interview request to Venezuela's Ministry of Communications. We even contacted journalists working for state outlets to get their assessment of the media climate. No one responded to us. The polarized politics of the country have made holding those in power to account very challenging for the media. For the journalists at El Bus TV, Armando.info, and on YouTube hosting their own channels, working in the alternative media space has not just been about reporting the unreported, but also about keeping a journalistic spirit alive in Venezuela. And doing that has involved banding together and pooling resources. For several years now, and not really by choice, Venezuelan journalists have had to learn to form alliances. We've needed a network to support and defend one another, even though it would seem more natural for us to be in competition for audiences and advertising. This is in fact a great moment to do journalism in Venezuela, because we're acutely aware that we're all equally necessary. I believe that at some point in the future, Venezuelans are going to acknowledge the contribution made by the many small independent media outlets that have worked to preserve a variety of viewpoints and to condemn irregularities. I think it's important to acknowledge the opportunities that have arisen despite the restrictions we've endured. Independent journalists have fought to continue their work. We ally with each other, we innovate and we adapt. 
it's clear that we don't need to depend on technology or huge financial support to work towards information freedom in Venezuela. It's interesting that through journalism, we have the ability to create spaces and openings for information to reach our audiences. And finally, AI-generated images. Yes, there are some serious concerns about what kind of fakery we are going to see through the powers of artificial intelligence. But this next-gen technology also produces some of the coolest, most innovative visuals out there. Like the one that recently duped many journalists into thinking that the Pope is into designer jackets, really expensive ones. The range of pictures that AI can generate is staggering. The possibilities, endless. We'll leave you now with a gallery of those images, including the Pope in a puffer jacket, an Oscar-winning politician, and a Prime Minister who will deliver. Just a taste of what this technology can do. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.